This is episode two of the series on the Syrian civil war and the U.S. and Russian interventions. If you haven't listened to the first episode, it is strongly recommended that you do so that you kind of get the full picture. In the second episode, we will be talking about Russia's intervention, the origins of it, and what this all means. Talking about the Russian model of intervention is a tricky thing because it gets into the larger discussion about the difference between strategy and grand strategy and fighting doctrines. And people who study and analyze the Russian military for a living are still arguing over whether there is a defined Russian grand strategy or if it's just an opportunity or if it's something that's constantly changing. And this is actually not an easy thing to answer. There are tons of articles out there which will argue one way and others which will argue another. And when I first wrote this episode out, I got about three pages in before I even talked about Russia's geopolitical grand strategy, if there is one, because this is such a complicated issue when it comes to Russia. Was intervening in Syria part of a larger doctrine of interference? Was it just the result of opportunity? Was this something they had been planning for since the U.S. started its intervention in 2011? What if the U.S. didn't intervene in Syria? Was Russia planning on it if Assad needed help? Are they trying to turn Syria into some sort of vassal or puppet state? What do they want? Does Russia have a grand strategy? What is it? For the U.S., strategy is fairly straightforward, and it's even open for the public to review. Our military strategy is currently based on the bottom-up review, which was written in 1993 to provide, quote, a comprehensive review of the nation's defense strategy, force structure, modernization, infrastructure, and foundations, end quote. The bottom-up review was all about reducing the size of the military from Cold War levels while maintaining a position where the U.S. could fight and win two major regional conflicts and one minor regional conflict at the same time. If I remember correctly, the example scenario used in the review document is one major conflict in Asia, presumably against China, one major conflict in Europe, presumably against a resurgent Russia, and one minor conflict in the Middle East. I, f I don't know who they use as an example. It might be Iran or maybe Iraq. Regardless, we haven't really updated our basic strategy since then. This is still the basis for our force composition and even our fleet rotations. Russia is in a completely different situation because they're inheritors of the Soviet grand strategic doctrine, which wound up being a failure. After the Cold War, everybody had to review their nation's grand strategy because things were different now. It was a unipolar world with one clear military leader. We in the U.S. did our review in 1993, but Russia wasn't really able to because they were in this difficult and chaotic state of transition for nearly a decade. Coming out of the Soviet Union was not an easy thing. The Soviet Union, as a subject of international and geopolitical reality, no longer exists. It's really important to understand that the Russian military was a complete mess after the Cold War. The Rand Corporation, which is a highly regarded think tank and just general sort of academic institution uh, based in California, they wrote an analysis on Russia's intervention in Moldova in 1993. And... They said it wasn't even the result of Russian strategy. For those who don't know, in Moldova, it used to be part of the Soviet Union. They broke away after the Soviet Union collapsed. They declared independence. But part of the Moldovan territory, an area called Transnistria, 
They wanted to remain with the Soviet Union. Moldova claimed sovereignty over it. That breakaway region attempted to secede. And then a Soviet army came in and defeated the Moldovans and kind of secured a ceasefire. It's one of Russia's frozen conflicts. It was never really resolved, so Russia just maintains a presence there. And Moldova doesn't have sovereignty over that area. And the Transnistrian government is fully funded by Moscow. And the Rand Corporation looked at the Russian army's intervention into Moldova, and they said it wasn't even the result of Russian strategy. The central government in Moscow was so chaotic that you essentially had armies and generals acting on their own accord. In Moldova, there is this uh, general on the ground, and he was in charge of the 14th Soviet Army that was stationed in or near Transnistria, except problem, there's no more Soviet Union, and he's technically not in Soviet territory anymore. And he technically doesn't control a Soviet army. Now it's a Russian army, but what does that mean? Whatever. Screw it. He throws his army's support behind the local rebels and defeats the Moldovan army. And Moscow just kind of has to deal with the outcome because they're not going to come out and say, well, we lost control of it. Our mistake. We'll deal with it. You can't be a world power and lose control of your military. In that same kind of period, I think it was actually a year or two before, you had the Soviet coup attempt in which members of the Russian military took part. You had paratroopers and tanks rolling into Moscow, trying to restore the glorious Soviet Union and keep it from falling Red apart. Army armored personnel carriers on the streets of Moscow this morning, heading to the Kremlin. They first moved in at 4 a.m., the first sign of the coup d'etat that removed Mikhail Gorbachev from power. By mid-morning, APCs were ringing the defense ministry and most government buildings. From many people on the streets, the reaction was one of sheer surprise and resignation. Tanks were also positioned outside the Russian parliament building, Boris Yeltsin's headquarters. The democratically elected president of Russia was soon striding out of the building to address a crowd of supporters. His own radio and television stations by now occupied and forced off the air, he climbed aboard one of the Red Army's own tanks and said the coup leaders had disgraced the... So what you have in the late Soviet, early Russian military is just chaos. There's no unified direction. There's no central directive. And it isn't until the 21st century that Russia can really start to think about and pursuing and enforcing a unified vision of grand strategy because you can't do all of that if you can't even control your army to begin with. But think about that for a second. The U.S. does their review, we did our review, in 1993, Russia can't even really start to think about it until the 21st century. But even this turns out to be difficult, because you have different factions fighting for what they believe Russia should be doing. Fine, Russia has control of its military now, they want to have a grand strategy, great. What is that going to be? What's the goal? You have the Western faction in Russia, and they want Russia to come to terms with the liberal world order, and sort of become a full member of Europe and the West. You have the nationalists, and they're closely tied with the civilizationalists, and they see Russia as a unique civilization that should be the hegemon in all areas between Western Europe and East Asia. You don't have to work with the West because we're better than the West. That's the nationalists and the civilizationalists. They see the Western culture, the entire idea of the West, and even the East, as something separate and inferior to the Russian civilization and identity and that these influences need to be purged from Russian society. You also have the old communist factions. They're still in Russia. They're still trying to reincorporate the Soviet territories. 
And then you have the likes of Vladimir Putin. Although he garners support from the nationalists and he's allies with some top civilizationalists, he's actually the head of another faction. Putin is the head of the status. And the status value the independence and the power of the nation state. They see Russia as a unique state that shouldn't be a member of the West, but should be one pole in a multipolar world. They want to be treated and respected as equals with the U.S., the European Union, and China. Now, in order to do that, in order to be able to enforce that political clout, Russia understands that first, you need to have a functioning military. Russia has relied for the past 30 years, even before that, even during the Soviet Union, they fully relied on the nuclear deterrent. And I think they've realized the U.S. really doesn't have to do that. Most nuclear powers, except for Pakistan, don't have to rely solely on the nuclear deterrent. The U.S. has the conventional deterrent, the intervention deterrent, the economic deterrent. Russia was fully focused on the nuclear deterrent for so long that I think they realized they needed something more. And first step is being able to have the conventional deterrent, the intervention deterrent, the support deterrent of the Russian military. And for that, you need a functioning and effective military. And in the 1999s, they don't have one. And it isn't until 1999 that Russia starts to pull it back together. Russia starts to reform and think about its defense strategy. They start to think about its force structure, about modernization, about infrastructure, about power projection. Except, Russia has the benefit of doing this at a time when we're much more cognizant of modern media and technology. Whereas the U.S. strategy is based in 20th century thinking, Russian strategic thinking starts in the 21st century, and it continues to evolve today. And credit is given to Vladimir Putin, but a lot of credit is also rightly given to the chief of the Russian general staff, Valery Gerasimov, and defense minister, Sergei Shoigu. Shoigu brings this renewed focus on quality. This means no notice inspections. This means readiness inspections, snap exercises, defense reforms, and he directs a procurement of new Russian military equipment. For Shoigu, the Russian military was no longer going to be based on this sort of cheap, mass-produced military technology because now it didn't have to be. The Soviets had this huge army they had to supply, and they had to supply the armies of the Soviet allied states along with all the other states that weren't really in their orbit, like Vietnam. So you needed something cheap and effective, something that was easy to use and repair. Unfortunately, that usually meant it was of lower quality. That's not to say they didn't produce some effective equipment, the AK-47 and the T-72, but they are consistently outclassed by the Western counterparts. Russia in the 21st century doesn't have these concerns. The Russian military budget is smaller than the Soviets, but so is the military. Division sizes went from around 14,000 men to 9,000 men. And Shoigu put a new emphasis on quality equipment for quality troops. He wants quality training. And all of this includes the idea that eventually, not right now, but eventually, Russia's going to stop conscripting soldiers and rely on professional contract fighting forces. So with Shoigu comes a new focus on quality, readiness, and eventually on the ability to send an expeditionary force well beyond Russian borders on a moment's notice to intervene in an area of interest. You can see how that plays into the Syrian intervention. Now Gerasimov, the chief of the Russian general staff, he's the other big player. 
Russian military theory has always been very academic, very much rooted in science and math, and Gerasimov has pushed and encouraged those in Russian military schools and current professionals to publish academic papers that explore new ways to conduct and think about war. Even if the idea pursued in the paper or in the research is never applied, Gerasimov sees the value of exploring those ideas and opening them up to criticism. Gerasimov wants to encourage this kind of radical new thinking, and the fact that they're doing so, I think it kind of scares the West. Because we haven't really changed anything since the bottom-up review in 1993. We might have added some things like the Afghan model and incorporated stealth technology and precision weapons, but Russia today is redefining what it means to fight a war and what it means to use violence and, more importantly, nonviolence to accomplish your geopolitical objectives. Nonviolent methods being disinformation campaigns, cyber warfare. So to put it simply, our reforms are dated by almost 30 years. Russia's are still ongoing. Now, despite these reforms, Russia is still inevitably tied to its Soviet legacy and the Soviet way of war, which makes understanding Russian military strategy difficult, because how can that be? How can it be both entirely revisionist and also rooted in a legacy that dates back 80 years? Well, in 2017, the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency published a report called Russian Military Power. It goes through the entire sort of Russian military organization, the whole military bureaucracy, their latest equipment, what their capabilities are. And they sum this paradox up rather nicely. In this report, they write, quote, The contemporary Russian ground forces pose a serious challenge to U.S. military planners and they should be seen as neither a simple continuation of past Soviet practices nor an entirely new force employing entirely new military concepts, but a highly nuanced and adaptive combination of both, end quote. When you take a step back and look at how the Russians have conducted interventions since Putin assumed control, you can see this trend. It's this strange mix of new Russian military thinking and classic Soviet strategy. And I bring all this up because it's important to remember as we try to dissect the Russian model of intervention that we're looking at a model that is constantly evolving and with a military that is reforming and is defined by a thoroughly modern set of experiences. All of which is set against the backdrop of Soviet expectations of military supremacy. The model that we'll explore in a second here, I... I wrote a paper that was published in the Small Wars Journal that covers this intervention model. And one thing I wish I spent more time writing about is Russia's emphasis on results at any cost. That's a very Soviet thing. It's a very communist thing. Whatever you do, get the result. Unfortunately, in both Soviet Russia and communist China, this often led to underlings reporting the results despite not achieving them. This is how you get a famine in the Great Leap Forward that kills 50 million people. And in the 1990s, I think that result at any cost kind of slipped from Russia a little bit as it tried to align with the Western ideas of compassionate military intervention. But today, Russia is more than ever about getting the result. They've gotten that back. And this is largely due to the utter humiliation they faced when they lost the first Chechen war. This war started in 1994, when the Russian military is in this state of chaos, and here, this one-time superpower who dared to challenge the United States and the whole of the European continent, who was once dictating politics across the world, is defeated 
and kicked out of its own territory by a small group of under-equipped insurgents. These insurgents are Chechens, who have been at the very least resisting Russian authority for like 200 years. And with the fall of the Soviet Union, they figure, hey, now's our chance, and they declare independence. Boris Yeltsin says, hey, not so fast, and he goes in to bring the area back under control. The war goes so bad for Russia that at one point, Russia is engaged with the better half of 100,000 men, reinforcements are on the way. with tanks and airplanes and artillery and everything they can muster, and they're beaten by 15,000, 10 or 15,000 guys with second-hand AKs and some RPGs. Now, that's not entirely fair of me. The Chechens had an air force, but it was wiped out right as the war started. They had some armor and some Soviet equipment, but nothing compared to what a proper Soviet army should have been fielding and should have been able to accomplish at the time. But Russia wasn't fielding a proper Soviet army. Russia was fielding an army of the Russian Federation. And no one was really sure what that meant. Russian troops were deserting in the middle of battle. Conscripts were sabotaging their own vehicles so they wouldn't have to advance. And Russian troops were being captured and even surrendering. The war ends in 1996 with the complete withdrawal of Russian troops, and Yeltsin basically begs them to remain as part of the Russian Federation, at least in name. In practice, Chechnya becomes completely independent. And on top of this, Russia also has to pay reparations. Russia is thoroughly humiliated. And to make matters worse, this all happens live, on television, in front of the entire world. In just six years, Russia went from one of two great powers in the world to a joke. You can see how that might leave some scars, and what that might lead someone to do, how that might influence future decisions. Three years later, in 1999, Vladimir Putin, as acting president of the Russian Federation, decides to go back, where Yeltsin was concerned with what the West thought and with keeping up appearances of Russia being a full participant in the Western liberal order. Putin was going to go back to Chechnya, and he was going to go in this time with an eye on results. Putin knew he was never going to get the kind of Western approval and the respect he thought Russia deserved. So if he's never going to get it, then why bother? Yeltsin had told his generals to show restraint because that's what the West would do, right? Russian commanders insist their instructions aren't to shoot, just to disarm the rebels. These compassionate military interventions where we don't kill so many people and still get the job done. Yeltsin told his generals to do the same thing and look where it led them. Putin, he would give no such order. Putin stabilizes the Russian political situation and the military bureaucracy, but He's still new. He's only the acting president. And there are still questions over whether Russia is going to keep falling apart or not. What Putin really needs in 1999, he needs a win. And you can see the symbolism in that. You can't close on a 20th century that is by and large dominated by Russia. You can't close on that century with Russian humiliation. Putin needs something that will prove that Russia is okay. Better, he needs something that will prove that Russia is back, that Russia is capable, and that Russia is not lost. He winds up getting all of this when he goes back into Chechnya in 1999, and it's this experience that gives birth to the Russian model of intervention that eventually gets employed in Syria. So where the Afghan model focuses on this lead-from-behind method with precision strikes and with 
local forces, and the eventual establishment of a new democratic order, the Chechen model of intervention is a combination of shock and awe, of asymmetrical counterinsurgency operations, like kidnapping and murder, of propaganda, of disinformation, and of corruption of the existing political apparatus. The Chechen model is not interested in building a new political order so much as it seeks to take effective control of the existing one. The Chechen model has been used, obviously, in the Second Chechen War, but also to a certain extent in Russia's war with Georgia in 2008 and in the Syrian Civil War. So as we said, 1999, Vladimir Putin decides to go back to Chechnya to settle the score, and he starts with an all-out siege of Chechnya's capital city, Grozny. Russia uses conventional bombing, artillery, anything available at their disposal short of nuclear weapons gets used. And in this siege, they wind up destroying the city block by block. And then they go back over those same blocks and make sure they didn't miss anyone. Chechnya becomes one of the most destroyed cities on earth. The Chechen rebels, at first, are able to resist. They hold out, and they manage to survive, but then Russia just steps up the bombing campaign, and they start dropping leaflets, and these leaflets say, quote, you have lost. There will be no more negotiations. Everybody who has not left the city will be destroyed, end quote. And that should tell you how Putin was approaching Chechnya this time around. Yeltsin had told his generals to show restraint. Those leaflets demonstrate as little restraint as possible. In February, after about a month of endless bombing, the Chechen rebels flee the capital, and they're forced to escape the routes which were left open for them by the Russians. And they left these routes open purposely because the Russians made sure they led directly into minefields. The siege of Grozny is important because sieges become a part of the Russian model of intervention. Their intervention in Syria begins with the Battle of Aleppo, which many have referred to as the Siege of Aleppo. And sieges are an important tool for Russia because they're cost-effective. In an article for Parameters, which is a journal out of the U.S. Army War College, this is Lionel Beaner, Bertie Benedetta, and Michael T. Jackson, they write that a siege is beneficial if, quote, the advancing army does not possess the human, financial, or military resources to seize and control the city outright, end quote. And that absolutely describes the army Russia is working with, not just in 1999, but also in 2015 when Russia is under economic sanctions. With the successful capture of Grozny, Vladimir Putin is able to accomplish in one month what Boris Yeltsin had failed to accomplish in two years. Russia controls Grozny, and the Chechen rebels have either fled the country, some join Islamic insurgent groups in Central Asia and the Middle East, or they fled into the Caucasus Mountains. From here, Russia begins the mop-up operations, and these are those counterinsurgency operations. And their tactics include rape, torture, murder. They corrupted the local government, which had the secret police, and they would go into neighborhoods suspected of aiding the rebels, and they would just kill everybody. Russia assassinated the leader of the Chechen rebels, they assassinated his successor, and they also assassinated human rights activists and journalists who were spotlighting these tactics to the press to the international press. And if you're interested in learning more, you should look up Anna Politkovskaya and Natalia Estemirova. Those are two high-profile victims. And these are Russian nationals, by the way. The Kremlin took great care to take control of the narrative and take control of the media. 
In the first Chechen war, Yeltsin had been pressured by an independent media to sign a ceasefire with the rebels, and he was pressured into doing so because this independent media kept telling the Russian people how bad the war was going. Military defeat aside, Yeltsin had to sign the treaty with Chechnya just to avoid a political crisis at home. So not only was the Russian war in Chechnya, the first one in 1996, defeated by the outside force, they also had internal failure at home. And Putin was not going to let that happen. On February 6th, in 2000, Putin takes to the airways and declares that the Battle of Grozny is over and that Russia is victorious. He even says that Russia has hoisted a flag over the administration buildings. It's very reminiscent of that famous photo from World War II with the Soviet soldier hoisting the flag over the ruined Reichstag in Germany. A month after this announcement, Vladimir Putin wins the Russian presidential election. Now, the outcome of that election was probably never in doubt, but he wins it with overwhelming support because the Russian people believed that he had delivered, and he had. As the fighting in Chechnya winds down, Russia starts what's been referred to as Chechenization, and this is where Russia systematically removes people in the Chechen government and replaces them with pro-Moscow puppets. And when we say government, we don't just mean presidents and vice presidents and representatives. We mean all the way down to the local level. After the siege, Putin names Akhmad Katerov as the president of the Chechen Republic, and Katerov uses secret police to root out any remaining rebels, and then he makes cash payments to other rebel groups. In exchange for cash, they agree to turn in their weapons and stand down, or at least fight for the Russian regime, for the pro-Russian regime, I should say. Now, the upside of the Chechen model is that it gets the job done. It creates a secure environment so that recovery can begin. You look at pictures of Grozny today, and it doesn't even look like the same city. The whole thing has been rebuilt, and it kind of had to be because it had been wiped off the map. Now, there are accusations that the rebuilding that went on is all surface-level stuff. You know, the new apartment blocks are empty, or that they're built to look good, but they lack electricity, or they lack running water. And I'm sure that's probably true to some extent. But one thing that stuck out to me was an article in, I think it was The Guardian, and the journalist who wrote it had gone to Grozny, and I think this was in 2014, so 14 years after the siege, and he went to go and check up on the locals and see how they were doing. I read somewhere that the Chechen population has an incredibly high rate of PTSD, so there's this human interest element in the story, and it attracts a lot of these kind of writers. So he goes there, and he interviews them, and one of the locals says something very interesting. But to understand why what this local says is interesting, we first have to talk about the term big man. And anyone who studied international security has come across the term big man. This is the catch-all term for the locals who have the most authority and have greater authority than the quote-unquote legitimate state. These big men essentially monopolize the violence in their immediate area. And the problem is, that's supposed to be the state's job. But these big men who, by the way, are often literally referred to as the big man just in their respective languages, they control the violence. And so they are the judge, they are the jury, they are the executioner, they are the entire justice system, and they are the tax authority. You could think of them as mini-sovereigns within an already supposedly sovereign state. And big men are rife in Africa, but you'll also find them in Central Asia, in Pakistan, in the Middle East, and in Chechnya. Well, this local the journalist is interviewing refers to the Russian troops as the very big men. 
And I think that sums up the Chechen model completely. Creating security in any environment is about monopolizing the legitimate use of violence into a single entity. You as the state says, you, civilian, you're not allowed to exact punishment on someone else using violence because that's not your job, that's ours. We have the right, we have the legitimate use of force and no one else. That is what creates order. If someone robs me, I don't have the legitimate use of violence to go beat them up and get my stuff back. I have to give that to the state. And if I try to skirt around the state, if I try to use violence, even if it's reciprocal violence, I'll get in trouble. In some nations, that legitimate use of violence, that single entity, that's the government. In others, it's the local chief. And in a lot, it's the big man. Well, Russia's intervention model has them coming in and saying, it's not your government, it's not your local chief, it's not your big man, it's us, it's Russia. And the thing is, this works. It may sound brutal, it may sound overly simple, but here's the thing, it works. However, like the Afghan model, there are some pretty significant downsides. After Grozny, many Chechens declared a blood feud on Russia, and they even joined jihadis to get that blood feud done. The victims of the Chechen model felt perfectly justified using terrorist attacks to get back at the Russians because look what they did to Grozny. They wiped it off the map. Once you do that, anything goes. And so you had Chechen terrorists doing things like the 2002 Moscow theater crisis. Though what happened there was that Chechen terrorists took hostages in this theater and Russian security services, they pumped in gas to try and knock everyone in the theater unconscious. The idea was, you pump in this gas, everyone gets knocked unconscious, you go in, arrest the bad guys, wake all the good guys up, and everyone goes home. Big problem, though, the gas wound up killing 200 hostages. Then, in 2004, you had the Beslan school siege. Rebels stormed the school and forced more than 1,100 children, parents, and teachers into a small gym. They wanted Russian troops to leave the nearby Republic of Chechnya. 331 people died. 186 of them were children. You add the 2010 Moscow Metro bombings, which kill another 40. The cell phone videos of chaos in carnage today on a Russian subway platform are what law enforcement officials around And then you have sporadic killings. But Russia weathers these attacks. Further, these attacks are also used to help grant the office of the Russian presidency more direct power, more emergency power. And Russia continues to use these counterinsurgency tactics and this counterinsurgency campaign to exert more and more direct control over Chechnya, and that control continues to this day. But going back to 2000, this is right before Putin declared victory on February 6th, he actually does this on February 4th, Putin gathers his security council. And at this point, they know they're victorious. All they really had to do was start cleaning up, craft a nice victory speech, and go about their day. But he gathers together his top staff and endorses the drafting of a new military doctrine based on the experiences they just had winning the war in Chechnya. And this brings us to the Chechen model eventually being employed in Syria. Only this model has now had about 15 years to develop, so it looks a little different but the basics are still there. As we said, late September 2015, began Russia begins bombing bombs in Syria within an hour of a Russian three-star general entering the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad and delivering a verbal démarche to the U.S. defense attaché announcing that Russian airstrikes would begin This continues for a year, and by November 16th, the city is surrounded 
and it's been mostly destroyed by Russian airstrikes and Assad's airstrikes and Assad's troops and Russian mercenaries. And spoiler alert, 2,500 of these mercenaries belong to a company called Wagner, and that company is owned by a Putin ally who also just so happens to be a former Russian intelligence agent. Just some food for thought. So after the city is surrounded, a month later, on December 22nd, 2016, Assad retakes full control of the city. says it has retaken full control of Aleppo. It's President Bashar al-Assad's biggest victory in the five years... Of the rebels who remain, Russia and Syria use, quote, food, water, electricity, and military forbearance in exchange for acquiescence to regime dominion, end quote. And I love that term, military forbearance. By 2017, the U.S. has ceased its support for the Free Syrian Army and ceded Aleppo to the Russians, and this effectively cedes the war to Assad. The U.S. decides instead to focus entirely on supporting the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, and their fight against ISIS. The U.S.-Afghan model failed in Syria, and it failed because it was never willing to attack Syrian government troops directly, and it was always on the softer side of violence. It used precision munitions. Which are accurate, but there's something to be said for collateral damage. The special forces the Afghan model employs, they're sent in as trainers and advisors and directors of airstrikes, but by and large, they're not combatants. Russia is using thousands of mercenaries who are all former special forces. But still, the U.S.-Afghan model would have been fine with precision munitions and the non-combatants. That would have been fine, and it was, until another model came in that had no such hesitations. Now, it's one thing to say that Russia used more violence, and so it was able to win. But it's another to really understand just how much more violence they used. These figures come from both Russian sources and analysts at the Institute for the Study of War in D.C., so in two years, Russia conducted 34,420 sorties, which were, by and large, concentrated in and around three cities, Aleppo, Idlib, and Homs. And none of those sorties include the Syrian government attacks, which were done with Russian supplies and munitions. Russia and Syria used both cluster and incendiary bombs to kill as many rebels as possible and demonstrate the power that the rebels were going to face, and the hopelessness of resistance. Russia also deployed their special forces, not just the PMCs, but also their quote-unquote volunteers, the little green men. And interestingly, Ramzan Katerov, the pro-Russian son of the pro-Russian Akhmad Katerov, who was also now the president of Chechnya, he became president in, I think it was 2006, this younger Katerov, he sends over a brigade of soldiers who have experience hunting down insurgents because they've been hunting down Northern Chechen Syria rebels for years. Been fought by hundreds of armed groups. Now a new player has entered the fray, Chechnya. With the Russian government's blessing, Chechens are taking on a larger military and diplomatic role. And these the brigades, they've been called death squads. That's the Russian effort. Well, in four years, the U.S., and the West conduct nearly 70,000 sorties. So about double that of the Russians, but that's also in double the amount of time. But unlike Russia's, which are concentrated, the U.S. airstrikes are spread out between two massive countries, Iraq and Syria, and they're focused on ISIS, not Assad. To demonstrate just how effective Russia's intervention campaign was, all we have to do is look at Assad before Russia intervened and after. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights estimates that in 2015, Assad controlled just 22% of Syrian territory. 
Russia intervenes in 2015, and by January 2018, Assad controls 56%. By July, he controls around 65 to 70%. But most importantly, the Trump administration has accepted that Assad will stay in power. And I don't think that's Trump acquiescing to Putin or anything. I think that decision is the result of the reality on the ground. The Chechen model achieved Russia's geopolitical objective of keeping Assad in power the same way it had in Chechnya. Through concentrated and overwhelming violence, and by willing to essentially outviolence the competition. Russia has also been able to corrupt the local government. Yeah, Assad is still independent, but there's no question as to who he answers to. I don't think anyone's under the illusion that once this is all said and done, Assad's just going to go back to being, you know, fully Baathist and non-aligned. Not that he was not aligned before. He was always allied with Russia. But it's very clear who Assad answers to. Putin also announced there would be a permanent presence of Russian forces in the country, which means that any Syrian security affair becomes a Russian security affair. Putin's also leased out two bases in Syria for 50 years. And he got those at a bargain. Now, this is an interesting note, and it comes straight from the Kremlin. In a meeting with Assad, Putin basically told him, I'm going to meet Erdogan, the Turkish president. We're going to discuss the Syrian National Congress, and then I'll tell you what to do. His exact words were, quote, We will contact you following these talks, and I will inform you in detail about our common plans for achieving a final settlement, end quote. Final settlement, he means a final settlement with um, rebel factions they had reached ceasefire agreements with. That, to me, sounds like a nice way of saying, once we figure out what to do, I'll let you know, and then you're going to do it. So as of this recording, this is kind of where we're at. There is fighting ahead. Assad and Russia need to reclaim cities that are still held by the rebels, like Raqqa. But by and large, the outcome of the war is settled. Now, there may be some territorial changes. Maybe a new Kurdish state will be carved out in the peace process. I doubt it, given Turkey's involvement. But what we focused on, the competing and opposing objectives of the United States and Russia, that's over. That's been settled. The United States wanted Bashar al-Assad to be deposed, Russia having military interests in the area, and not wanting to see the spread of democratic revolution, they wanted him to stay. And Assad is staying. The U.S. intervention in Syria was defeated, not because it failed, but because another rival power came into the picture and said, mm, I don't think so. The ramifications of this down the road for both Syria and the world have yet to be seen, but we can speculate, and speculating is fun, so in this next section, I figured we could take a second to reflect on what this all means and what it could mean moving forward. Because I think we need to know if this is something that we, as Americans, as citizens, and as stakeholders of the Western liberal order, right, because we like the West sort of being dominant, that's good for us. We need to know if this is something we should be worried about. If the precedent that was set in Syria is reflective of a trend that is developing, and if that trend ends with the downfall of that order. And so in this next section, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what the Syrian intervention says about Russia, what it says about the United States, and what it says about the world at large. So that was part two, Rising from the Ashes. If you have anything you'd like to add to the discussion, feel free to email me at boppodcast at gmail.com. Uh, so thank you for your support and thank you for listening.